continue our study in Ephesians chapter 1. Last time I mentioned how verse 3 to verse 14 in Ephesians chapter 1 is one very long sentence in the original Greek. And this means that what I'm about to read to you is just a sentence fragment. Uh, but yet notice how many times in this sentence fragment Paul keeps coming back to a common theme, that theme being the mention of God's will, God's purpose, and God's plan. This is uh, just the fragment from uh, verse 5 to verse 10. In love, God predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his great and good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ." In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in a conformity with the purpose of his will. Did you notice how many times Paul mentions God's plan, God's purpose, God's will? What is this plan? What is God's grand purpose and will? For us, his people. Well, we'll be talking more about this in the weeks to come, but God's plan, purpose, and will revealed in Ephesians chapter 1 can be summarized like this God's plan is to glorify Jesus by adopting children through the process of redemption. God is glorifying Jesus by adopting children through the process of redemption. Uh, God's plan is to adopt those children through the process of, to, of redemption. And today we want to study this last redemption part of the plan, which is mentioned in verse 7. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. The Greek word for redemption is apolutrosis. And the word is, it means to buy back from slavery and refers to the act of paying a price in order to release someone, a person who is in bondage. Uh, and I think you can understand how uh, apolutrosis uh, is a fitting description of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Jesus redeemed us. My sin makes me a slave. My sin guilt is this mountain of debt that puts a death sentence on my head and I end up being a hostage of guilt and shame and condemnation. And when I was Satan's slave with no hope of release, Jesus paid my debt with his own blood. Jesus paid the price, bought me back, and freed me from slavery. And this is what Paul means in verse 7, that in Christ I have apolutrosis. 
redemption through his blood. And I think most of us understand this definition of redemption. Uh, but can you guess why Paul is using this particular word at this particular point in Ephesians chapter 1? The reason is that Paul is making a connection between uh, the word redemption in verse 7 and the word adopted in verse 5. The connection brings us back to another unique aspect of adoption in the Greco-Roman world. Last week, I mentioned that there, uh, that there was one unique feature in adoptions in the first century, and that is that adoptions in the Roman world in, usually involved a war orphan. Since Rome was always conquering new territory, Rome dealt with war prisoners by the thousands, including hundreds of war orphans uh, with no mothers and no fathers uh, distributed among the cities of the Roman Empire, cities like Ephesus. What I didn't mention last week was how these motherless and fatherless kids were distributed throughout the empire. These orphans were distributed through the institution of slavery. Rome would bring these war orphans to a city like Ephesus, put them on an auction block, and sell them to the highest bidder. And in most cases, uh, when these kids were purchased, they were purchased as slaves to be slaves. Now, uh, as Americans, we automatically uh, think that first century Roman slavery was the same as 19th century American South slavery, but it was not the same. First century Roman slaves uh, were not toiling out in the fields with whips and harsh treatment. Uh, no, they were for the most part household servants who cooked and cleaned and uh, took orders from the master and his uh, family in the house. So how does all this relate to redemption? Well, sometimes a wealthy householder bought a war orphan at auction with no intention of making that child his servant. Sometimes the master uh, bought the slave with the intent of setting the slave free, paying the price that would set the slave free from slavery so that he could adopt that child as his own son or daughter. And when the slave was purchased and set free from slavery in this manner, it was called apolutrosis. It was called redemption. And this is important to know because if you are a follower of Jesus, this is your story. You are a war orphan uh, who has been set free from slavery and made an adopted child of God through the process of redemption. The price on your head was so high that it required Jesus' blood. But God wanted you so much that he paid the price so that you could go from being an orphan slave to being a prince of privilege and power and possession and uh, position in the household of your father who happens to be the creator of the universe. Now you would think 
that it would be easy to make this transition from being an orphaned slave to a privileged prince. But it is not easy. Uh, it is not easy to change your self-identity just like that. A mindset does not change overnight. Old thought habits die hard. I'm sure that was true on a literal level for first century adoptions. Can you imagine uh, being a war orphan who has several times been bought and sold uh, into different households as a slave, but then can you imagine your confusion when you're chosen by a wealthy householder uh, and your price is paid, but this time your master tells you he doesn't want you to be his servant. He wants you to be his child. Uh, can you imagine how difficult that would be to transition from having masters who only want you to sweat and be engaged in constant labor to having a master who is your father and who doesn't want you to work but wants you to to have a relationship with him, a relationship of love and conversation and shared experiences. Can you imagine how hard it would be to learn to look your master in the eyes, crawl up into his lap, and call him Daddy, Abba? Can you imagine how hard it would be to stop thinking of yourself as a pitiful poor and powerless slave and to start thinking of yourself as a prince with all the access and position and power of your father. I hope you can imagine how difficult it would be for a literal slave to transition to the mindset of a literal adopted child because this is also your story. If you are a follower of Jesus, uh, Growing in Christ is the process of breaking old thought habits so that you transition from a slave's self-identity to a child of God self-identity, from a slavery to sin mindset to a freedom in Christ mindset, from a spirit that makes you a slave to fear to a spirit of adoption that sets you free as God's loved child. This transition in thinking is what Paul is communicating in Ephesians chapter 1. In this chapter, Paul opens the treasure chest uh, that belongs to every adopted child of God and shouts, look at who you are as God's adopted child and look at everything the Father has given you. And then Paul piles treasure upon treasure because he knows how hard it is to transition from a slavery mindset to an adopted child of God mindset. Paul speaks directly to this mindset transition difficulty in a letter he wrote to the church in Rome where he writes in Rome chapter, chapter 8 verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as God's children. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So speaking through Paul, God says, 
that becoming uh, his adopted child involves a drastic change of mindset where I need to stop taking the identity of a slave who responds to God with fear and I need to start taking the identity of a child who responds to God with a Abba Daddy kind of relationship with mutual affection and is completely free from fear. So if you are a child of God through faith in Jesus, I have an important question for you. Are you free? Are you free? Would you say that you relate to God with more fear or with more freedom? Uh, do you relate to God like a slave or like a son? Now just place yourself on that continuum if you would. Here on the far right, this is where you fully relate to God uh, as his child who is free from fear. And then on the, what is my far left anyway, uh, where you frequently relate to God as a fear-based slave mindset. Where are you on this continuum? Now, to help you evaluate uh, yourself, let me suggest some categories to consider. Uh, let's do a side-by-side -side contrast uh, between the person who lives under the fear of a slave and the person who lives with the freedom of God's child. Here's the first contrast. The fear of the slave insists that God's approval is based on my changing performance. Whereas the freedom of God's child trusts that God's approval is based on God's unchanging grace. That's the first contrast. Performance-based approval uh, versus grace-based approval. The second contrast is uh, the fear of a slave says that when it comes to receiving from God, the slave doesn't expect good gifts from God. Whereas the child of God knows the Father's heart, and therefore good gifts from God are joyfully anticipated. So, second contrast has to do with those good gifts. The third contrast is that uh, under the fear of a slave, I approach life as one who is powerless under circumstances. Whereas on the other side of the contrast, the freedom of the child of God says that I can approach, con uh, I can approach uh, uh, my, my life confident that God is giving me empowerment over circumstances. Last contrast. Uh, on the fear of a slave side, under the fear of a slave, I live convinced that God's forgiveness for me is conditional on my improvement. On the other side, as a child of God, I live convinced that God's forgiveness is freely received, no strings attached. All right, so starting at the top, let's just uh, expand a little bit on this side-by-side -side contrast, starting with the contrast that a slave's relationship with God is performance-based approval, and a child relationship with God is a, a grace-based approval. Which are you? When you are a slave, you are always afraid. 
because your work is never done and your performance is never perfect. You're always insecure because you have good days and you have bad days. And so you're always on a roller coaster of fear as you perceive your master's approval going up or going down with your performance. But if you are a child of God, the Father has redeemed you with this lavish grace that is described in Ephesians 1 verse 8. And God adopts you as his child. He doesn't want work from you. He wants a relationship with you. And so his approval does not go up and down. It is always as high as heaven because God's approval is based on his unchanging grace. So what about you? Are you free? Or do you constantly struggle with performance guilt in your relationship with God? Do you find yourself wanting to hide from God because you feel like such a disappointment? Do you find yourself perpetually cowering uh, under God's judgment because you haven't prayed enough, you haven't read the Bible enough, because you don't love enough, or because you sin too much? If this describes you, you're operating under a slave mindset of fear. And God's message to you is stop. Stop basing your relationship on your performance. You're not my slave. You're my son. You're my daughter. How about you? You get a good idea of where you are on that mindset continuum by evaluating how much guilt and shame and fear you have in your relationship with the Father. The second contrast between a slave mindset and a child of God mindset involves good gifts in life. When you're a slave, you would never expect your master to shower you with good gifts. As a slave, your mentality says, I don't expect to get good things from God. I don't deserve to get good things from God. And therefore, I don't ask for good things from God. And this is tragic thinking because God reserves many of his best gifts to those of his children who will simply ask Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. If you, though you are imperfect parents, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How about you? When was the last time you came to God just to ask a favor? Do you talk to God about good gifts that you would like to receive. Are you asking and seeking and knocking? You get a good idea of where you are on the mindset continuum by evaluating how much you ask God. If you're on the far right of freedom with God as his child, you are a praying fool. You constantly crawl into Abba's lap all the time asking for good things. Next, the third contrast involves a person's view of obstacles in life. Slaves are powerless. Slaves have no freedom of movement. Slaves have no freedom of choice. And so slaves are powerless under circumstances. But the children of God are free. God's children know that they have access to their father's wealth and position. And so as a result, God's children have power over circumstances. When slaves are hated, they have no choice but to hate back. 
But when God's children are hated, they have the power to love with God's kind of forgiving love. When slaves are hurt by others, they have no choice but to hurt in return. When God's children are hurt, they have the power to love their enemies like God loves. When slaves face tragedies and trials and troubles, uh, they have no power but uh, to be shackled in disappointment and discouragement and despair. But when God's children face these things, they have the power to move forward in peace and confidence and trust in their father's power of position and wealth. What about you? Uh, you get a good idea of where you are on this continuum uh, by evaluating your reaction to the difficulties and obstacles in your life. You know you are thinking like a child of God when you can face uncertainties without anxiety, without worry, knowing that your daddy is the all-powerful being in the universe and he loves you. Finally, the last contrast uh, involves how these two different mindsets approach failure. We all fail. Those who are slaves of fear uh, make sinful choices and the God, God's children make sinful choices. The contrast lies in how they react to their failure. Those who operate under the slave mentality assume that their master's forgiveness is conditional on their promise to improve. In a relationship with God, that slave mentality traps believers in a destructive lie. And the lie goes like this. When I came to Jesus for the first time and I put my faith in him, God forgave me of all my sins up to that point. But now that I am a believer, God expects me not to need his forgiveness very much anymore. God expects me to get my act together. God certainly doesn't expect from me any big sins to forgive, only small sins. And when it comes to those small sins, God certainly doesn't expect me to be asking for forgiveness for the same small sins over and over again. So once I'm a believer... God does forgive me, but it comes with strings attached. God forgives me on the condition that I promise to improve. This is a lie that turns the children of God into slaves of fear in their relationship with him. We become slaves of fear because sometimes God's children do commit the so-called big sins. And sometimes when it comes to the so-called small sins, sometimes God's children don't improve. Sometimes we continue to fail over and over again in the same area. And so this lie turns the children of God into slaves of fear because you feel like you're rejected from God. You feel like you're on the outside of God's forgiveness. You feel as though you deserve punishment from God. And when difficulty comes into your life, that's exactly what you conclude. You conclude when trials come that God is making you pay for your sins. This is such a destructive lie. So let's go back to what God's word says in verse 7 and 8 of Ephesians 1. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he's lavished on us. God has adopted me 
as his child through apolutrosis. God bought me out of slavery. And Paul connects this redemption to God's complete, consistent, and constant forgiveness. This forgiveness has no strings attached, no conditions, no expectations, no demands for improvement, no punishment for anything ever. God's forgiveness is no questions asked for his children. And you may say, hey, Steve, aren't you being a little over the top here? Uh, That's funny. It's exactly what God says about his grace. In the Greek, that phrase, the riches of God's lavish grace, means God has graced us with grace upon grace. That sounds over the top to me. You get a good idea of where you are on the mindset continuum in your relationship with God between slave and son by evaluating your readiness to continually just receive, receive God's over-the-top forgiveness. Janet Corday was in a car accident that 35 years ago left her paralyzed from the waist down and in a wheelchair. How does God's grace apply to her? Gary Corday was a believer who committed not just one, but several of those so-called big sins. How does God's grace apply to him? I was 18 years old, and I had a car accident. We were on Black Rock Turnpike. There were others in the car I was driving. From what I understand, it it skid, and it skid on its side. The roof was sheared off, hit a foam pole, and flipped over. I obviously couldn't stand up and walk away, but I could feel my legs and I could move my legs, but I broke my back. Two others were with me in the back seat that they had to be cut out of the car. My friend Colleen had a pierced lung and a collapsed lung, and Scott, um, he was unconscious for nine days, and they didn't tell me that in the beginning, because if either one of them had died, I don't think I could have lived with that. So even though I have my life the way it is, I'm thankful it happened to me. I had surgery and the doctor did something wrong. And I remember everybody was angry at this doctor. And I remember saying, but it was a mistake. (laughs) You know, he made a mistake. Life happens. I became a believer at the age of 25, my second time at Black Rock. I was married. I ended up having uh, like five major back surgeries and the doctors had me on high doses of morphine. They abruptly took me off and I started using street drugs. My wife, my first wife divorced me. I ended up committing crimes and getting arrested. I was so distraught about how I was living my life and I couldn't seem to get clean. I never had any doubt where I would be going after this life, this life. so I thought it would be better just to end it and go to heaven and face God for ending my life early. I decided that I was going to overdose. I made plans for it. I put eight, ten bags of heroin in the, in the, the needle and I shot it up and I pulled it out of my arm and 
I waited there to die and nothing happened. And I became angry. I shot another eight bags of heroin and still nothing happened. And then I realized that, that God wasn't gonna let me die. And I knew it was directly related to all the people at Black Rock that knew what was going on with my life had been praying for me. I was sent to prison for, for seven years. I know for a fact that I never would have made it through that time if it wasn't for the people in Black Rock. For seven years, I didn't, well, not one day passed where I didn't get a piece of mail from somebody. Not even just mail, people used to come and visit me. I never had any problems with any gang members or anything. Everybody knew that, that I was a believer. And every, every night I would wake up at like three o'clock in the morning and, uh, and I was convinced God wanted me to be praying for people. And I would just get on my knees and I would start in my mind going through the entire floor and praying for people. And every, every night I got up, there was this guy and he would just have his head in his hands. So finally I asked him, I said, what's, what's the matter? And he said, I killed somebody. He said, and I never did, he said, I didn't mean to. I said to him, I said, you know, I said, you can, God can forgive you for that. And uh, he prayed that night to, to accept Jesus as his savior. About a year later, I ran into him in another facility. I was in a church service and I got a tap on my shoulder and it was him behind me. He was still praising God. And uh, about six months later, I found out he died in prison. So I know he's, he's in heaven. Well, I became a believer December 1st, 1988. My sister and brother-in-law, who has since went to be with the Lord, Sue and Howard Hirsch, um, they were believers. They had a Bible study, and unbeknownst to me, they were praying for me. I had a boyfriend of nine years, and the last two of those nine years, we bought a house together, and so we were living together. My sister invited me to Grace and Vessels. It's a healing ministry. She gave an invitation and I raised my hand and I went down. I always had this cloud over my head. It was always this doom and gloom. It was just, life wasn't joyful. It was going through the motions. After this night, I remember sitting in my driveway before I went in. My boyfriend didn't come with because he just had no place for church in his life. I remember praying in the driveway before I went into the house. I said, Lord, you know, Please don't let this good feeling leave me. I had to be careful because Carl, the boyfriend, didn't, he was threatened by it. I would have Christian music stashed in my van and I would listen to it, you know, and I remember one day he found it and he got angry. BlackRock used to do a Christmas play and an Easter play. I wanted to go there. You know, being in my situation, I wanted to get a good seat. I wanted to get there early. This was a big deal. He just got up, was so angry, kicked the table over, and left out the door. And if you had asked me, being in my situation, if this had happened six months prior to my accepting the Lord, Lord, I never would be able to be on my own. I would have been petrified, but he went out that door and I knew I was going to be fine. I knew, I just knew it. I lived alone and 14 years later, Gary came along. After I got out, um, I was, I came back and uh, the second week I was back, I saw Janet's van sitting in a parking lot and I said, 
I, you know, a friend of mine had picked me up. I was in a halfway house. And, uh, and I said, oh, there's Janice Fan. Let me go say hi. And she, I went over and uh, she rolled down my window and smiled at me. And, and I was done. Black Rock is my home. It's just my home. It's the people that I've known over the years. And there's people I love there and look forward to seeing every week. It's okay at Notre Dame. It really is. We're still a church. It's not a building. It's, it's who we are. My life at Black Rock now is... It's just incredible. It's hard for me to grasp because um, from where my life is today to where it was, I really felt like I was just a... Um, a broken piece of pottery, so to speak. I was basically, you know, I was marred for life. Black Rock has, uh, the people have shown me that, you know, when they forgive and when God forgives, really, they model what God does. He, it's, it's, you're forget when you're forgiven, it's forgotten.